Hello and welcome to So Now What? with Gates Cambridge, a podcast tackling some of the world's wicked problems with those who are dedicated to doing something about them. I'm Catherine Galloway, and my guests are all Gates Cambridge scholars working to make an impact in the lives of others. The scholarship itself, one of the most prestigious and competitive in the world, was established through a $210 million donation to the University of Cambridge from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and welcomed its first cohort of 90 postgraduate students in September 2001. 2,104 changemakers and 111 represented countries later, we're celebrating the difference the scholars have made so far, and taking a close look at the what next. Today, we're tackling that perennial New Year headache, the global economy, and asking how do we build back better after crisis, and in the midst of the climate crisis in particular. Joining me on Zoom from Washington today, I'm delighted to welcome Queen Nawari Sarah Quinn, Gates Cambridge Class of 2010, and Todd Tucker, Gates Cambridge Class of 2012. While also on Zoom, but just up the road here in Cambridge, UK, a warm welcome to Kamiar Mahadis, who was part of the Gates Cambridge cohort of 2005. Thank you all very much for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. And thank you for bravely agreeing to roll up your sleeves with me and tackle this question. Queen, your expertise centres on impact investing and the pan-African context. Todd, you're coming at it from a focus on economic transformation, governance and democracy. And Kamiar, your work does the maths on climate economics and sustainability. And we'll get into exactly what you all do and think and what the connections might be in just a moment. But I wanted to start by asking you all, what specifically are you bringing to the table today as we explore this issue? Queen, let's start with you. Thanks, Catherine. Today, I am bringing a sense of awareness, a different perspective about what it means to build back after a crisis and what it means to do that in a way that is just and inclusive and aware of the inequalities that exist in our current system. I actually think there should be a sense of moral outrage when we think of the inaction and the lack of climate justice for people across the African continent who have been disproportionately impacted by climate change and the lack of support and the promises that have been made and the pledges that have been made and the inability of the system to deploy capital effectively to the most vulnerable. That's fascinating. So a sense of injustice and a sense of outrage then. That's a really strong position to be bringing today. And I look forward to digging into that uh, with you. Todd, what about you? What are you bringing along today? I'm bringing a sense of optimism uh, that the US is finally stepping up to the plate after decades of inaction and doing something uh, at home on the climate crisis. I would agree with Queen that we're not doing enough internationally, which maybe we can get into in the conversation. But I think domestically, Uh, You know, we had all but given up on the U.S. doing anything with uh, opposition from the U.S. Senate, the U.S. court system. It really sort of seemed impossible to take any kind of action. Um, But fast forward, you know, just a few years and we really see, you know, the U.S. poised to spend trillions of dollars on decarbonizing the economy. And uh, it's really changing not only the climate conversation in the United States, but also just more generally the political conversation. And I think uh, we're starting to see the beginnings of a bipartisan consensus on climate, which uh, really that's that's the most surprising of everything, I would think, given the U.S. context, that you have one party that's moved from opposing climate action uh, because they don't trust the science, 
uh, to now that same party looking at it as a job creation plan. And that's actually really starting to shift the politics and create what we call sometimes like a green spiral uh, and self-reinforcing dynamic that's really exciting to watch. Goodness. So excitement, optimism, hope that I wasn't expecting that from you, certainly not from anybody in the discussion on, on, on climate economics in particular. So that's lovely to hear. Kamiar, what are you bringing today? So, um, well, I, I'm hoping to bring some of our recent studies, which which look at the impacts of climate change on economic activity. And uh, we hear a lot about uh, greening the financial system, and there's huge enthusiasm for this, which is obviously very, very welcome. But the fundamental challenge really is that as decision makers, as financial decision makers, as policy makers, we really lack the necessary information. It's not good enough to just know that climate change is bad. We really need to understand in a simple way, in a digestible way, in a credible way, how climate change translates into material risks, whether it's political risk, economic risk, migration risk, all of the types of uh, risks that, that we are exposed to. So I hope to bring some of our recent studies, which which look at the impacts of climate change on economic activity, which looks at whether these impacts are short-term or long-term. Do they affect poor, hot countries or do they affect also cold and advanced economies? What are the channels of impact? Do we understand the risks and potentially what's the role, what's the role of regulation? So we'll be here for a few hours, I think. What, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to veto that, <laughs> but thank you very much for unpacking your academic suitcase so uh, so extensively already. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, I wondered what you thought about the question. First of all, I realise I'm on dangerous territory here asking people to, to, to attack the question already. But the question was after crisis, build back better after crisis. And actually, many people would argue that we're in a state of permacrisis right now. It was the Collins Dictionary word of the year for 2022 was permacrisis. And that was in the time of Brexit and the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of the of Ukraine. And it was against a backdrop of, you know, mounting climate crisis and rising inflation. But we hadn't yet had the horror of the Israel-Gaza conflict or anything else that might be on the slate coming down the line. And so in permacrisis, things seem to be very interlinked and very connected. It's never just one thing. And permacrisis also seems to suggest we can't really do anything about it. Uh, there's a stuckness there. The, the crises are so complex, so interlinked and deep-rooted that they're beyond any idea of system change. So would you agree with that? Is it even possible to build back better when we're still in the crisis, especially regarding climate? I think it's possible, right? And and maybe this kind of uh, speaks to the green shoots of optimism that that Todd was talking about. But it doesn't negate the intractable nature of this challenge. Um, and you know, coming from this perspective of working on the African continent, it's estimated. So the African Development Bank estimates that there's 2.8 trillion dollars that are needed between now through 2030 in order to compensate. African governments for the emissions that they have been the least in terms of contributing to, right? So you see how disproportionate this impact is. And yet there have been all these pledges made. We had, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement where $100 billion in pledges were made, but we only are seeing $30 billion, just 3% of global climate finance actually going towards the African continent. And why is that? Because these structural challenges exist within the system. And I think it speaks a little bit to what Kamir was saying. 
with respect to a lack of information. Investors, institutional investors, don't have sufficient comfort to deploy their capital because they don't understand credit risk. They don't understand household risk. And so there are things that are embedded within this system that we need to adjust, we need to change. Um, you know, there's weak coordination between development finance institutions, and there's still a heavy reliance on debt in order to actually, you know, get these projects off the ground. So we need more public investment. We need, obviously, certainly more private capital to flow, but that private capital needs to be sufficiently comforted and provided with an understanding of the underlying risk that they would be taking. And Queen, you think that is possible? There'll never be a breathing point where we can apply something perfect. I have to believe it's possible, Catherine, (laughs) because otherwise, what am I doing every day? So, you know, part of what we attempted to do at Kupanda Capital, uh, we created a company called Nithio. And Nithio is a climate tech company that aims to provide more data and information to investors so they can make more informed decisions about the way that they deploy capital across the continent. So they can now do this by leveraging geospatial data so you understand behavioral characteristics and also understand climate vulnerability so you can target and reach people who are most vulnerable, who need the most support. And we believe through this approach, over the next three years, we can deploy $150 million in climate finance and reach 4 million households and avoid over 1.1 million tons of carbon. That's what's possible, but that's a tiny fraction of what we need to do because the, the challenge is so massive. So we need more and we need you know stronger commitments from, from governments, from public uh, sector entities and, and the multilaterals. Thank you, Queen. I, I mean, Camille, I know you've also been um, looking at the, the costs of climate change. At this point in time, January 2024, how ready do you think the policymakers, the governments, even we as consumers are to accept the risks and the costs of climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there there are several issues here. One is I don't think people understand the, the cost of inaction or or the cost of climate change. In other words, if you don't do anything, what what will happen? And I, I think I, there there is a reason for that. Many economists uh, would argue that in fact the cost of climate change is down to hot and uh, poor countries. Poor countries tend to be in the hot hotter regions. And in fact, a lot of uh, economists would argue that the impacts on advanced economies, which tend to be in the colder regions, is is almost uh, zero. Um, and I think that there's a big, big issue there. What we do is that we show that that is not the case. Advanced economies are going to suffer from climate change as much as poor developing and emerging economies are, are going to do. And, you know, uh, we also look actually at the most advanced economy in the world are arguably United States. And we show that the impacts of climate change are not just through the traditional channels that people talk about, especially in policy circles, which is agriculture, but it's also through mining, manufacturing, it's through retail, wholesale, uh, uh, utilities, and agriculture. So basically, the climate change will hit all sectors of the economy. And it will, you know, based on the data that we got from, from for the United States over the last uh, 55 years, we show that it's already impacting the US economy negatively. But what we need to realize that if we don't do anything, the cost will be very large. And I also liked uh, um, the connecting this to financial indicators. So in a, in a, another work that we do is actually we look at what would happen to sovereign ratings if the uh, rating agencies actually adjusted these 
uh, ratings by uh, making them climate smart. So we developed these climate smart sovereign ratings with colleagues at, uh, at Bennett, Oxford and the UEA. And what we basically show is that you will see downgrades of sovereigns within this decade under various warming scenarios, uh, climate-induced sovereign downgrades will be observed in 2030 and they will become more intense and more uh, 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 wide in terms of countries over the next, over the next century. So cost of inaction is, is very large. In other words, what I'm saying is, if you, as a policymaker, defer green investments, it will cost you more in, in terms of borrowing in, in the future. So it will impact your economies negatively. And when you start wanting to do something about it, it's going to cost you more. It's a no-brainer. You should do something about it today. But the issue that we have is basically a tragedy of horizons, I think, is that policymakers are reacting to things that are happening immediately. And obviously, they're looking for re-election, etc. And they're not really taking this uh, really long-term views, which climate change is one of them that we that we really need to take. But what I'm saying to policymakers is, this impact will be felt within this decade. In other words, within your electoral, uh, within within your cycle of elections. And in some sense, we're sleepwalking towards that at the moment still, because we can respond to individual crises such as an earthquake, a volcano, a flood, Absolutely. a tsunami, which is where. The Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 is where this phrase build back better started to be used a lot. But uh, we can deal with individual crises and raise that kind of capital. But the long term policy, which is where you're sitting, Todd, at the, at the Roosevelt Institute, um, you know, that isn't being addressed, you would say. Um, I mean, 2024, Todd, if we come to you, election year, of course, uh, in the United States, um, quite possibly looking at a, a second Trump presidency, uh, which seems extraordinary. Um, I know you believe that the answer um, for the United States, at least, is a sustained move towards investment in clean energy and good jobs. Could you define what you mean for me by good jobs in terms of building back better? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways you can define it in the US context where we've seen a historic declines in, for instance, union representation and labor movement participation, we're starting to see that tick up just a little bit again on the back of some of the public investments that are happening and union organizers using the fact that basically both Trump and Biden are kind of competing for their votes in a sense uh, to try to get as good a deal as possible. This conversation has been interesting because I think you're having an entrepreneurship perspective from Queen, an econ perspective from Kamiar, and then I'm sort of bringing a political science perspective, which is part of the reason that I feel confident uh, about at least the U.S. response is that for the first time in my lifetime of, of participating in the climate conversation, climate policymakers are beginning to think politically um, for the, in a way that they have not in the past. So I remember being in conversations in 2010, 2009, where um, you had basically rooms full of economists where they were just yelling at policymakers, don't you understand that, you know, you have to, the science is X, Y, Z, and you need to do carbon pricing today. Uh, and then the policymakers will, would say, I mean, especially in the US, where we are a fossil fuel economy, they would say, the, the, the downside of car, they can see all of the downside of doing carbon pricing and not a lot of the upside. And I think that what's really shifted as the U.S. just rammed its head repeatedly into trying to come up with a way of addressing the climate crisis and then having that 
gutted by the Supreme Court, gutted by the U.S. Senate, they kind of came around to um, to finding this more jobs forward way uh, of, of leaning into the policy. And I think that it's just the, the results are far exceeding what anyone thought. And the U.S. is now on track to, uh, you know, meet uh, something like 80% of its Paris climate commitments just on the basis of things that have already been passed. So, um, and I think that where we're starting to see is that that's also having a political upside where the incumbent party in the 2022 midterm elections did better than in almost any instance in U.S. history. Uh, and so far, they've been unable to undo um, in Congress some of the Inflation Reduction Act and other policies that Biden passed, despite some of the scary poll numbers and things that you know can cause you to pull out your hair and gnash your teeth uh, when you read the morning paper, I do think that it puts uh, the climate forward coalition uh, in a good position uh, to do well in the 2024 elections as well. That's really interesting because, Queen, I know you're based in Washington, but you're looking at it from a pan-African perspective. Would you say that some of that optimism that Todd is seeing in Washington is filtering back to the African continent, and are you seeing people saying, "Gosh, do you know there is change underfoot. We, we we might be able to leverage some of this." Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know we're seeing some of that uh, sort of um, presenting itself in some of the the projects and the operations that we have on the continent. So, for instance, um, you know, Nithio has a financial intermediary, and it's a blended finance vehicle. This is what's needed. Right, you need to blend public and private capital in order to to actually reach a broad swath of of customers who need access to clean energy. So the U.S. Development Finance Corporation (USDFC), um, that's America's DFI, is an investor in that vehicle, and I think a lot of that their prioritization of climate finance, uh, ensuring that they are trying to address issues around climate change. I think we've seen certainly a material change uh, relative to the last administration. So all of that has been positive. It's been good. Uh, It's just that the scale of the challenge is so significant that these still seem, um, you know, like really small steps. And and when you think of the cost, so Kamir mentioned the cost of inaction, or the let's say the cost of doing very little, you know, we're looking at the cost to the continent, 50 billion per year, um, in order to, to deal with adaptation and resilience. And those are the areas that it's still very difficult to attract capital. Listening to you all talk, I'm so aware that what we're really also talking about is a problem of connectivity. We're, we're talking about a problem of joining up the dots. And it, even on this one Zoom call, I know that you're all united by being Gates Cambridge scholars, but essentially you come from the worlds of academia for Khmer, uh, policy for Todd and, and finance for Queen. How, how often do those three sectors get in the room together and talk and share notes? Not very much. Yeah, uh, not as often as it should be, right? Yeah. Would that help with a, with a building back better agenda? Who needs to be in the same room and not just at Davos, if they even are in the same room at Davos? I mean, I think the part of the challenge of, the, of climate as an issue is that it is this global phenomenon that has to be, in some sense, dressed globally. Um, at the same time, the actual units that are making the decisions about what to do are nation states, right? right? And nation states that have their own domestic political challenges. Um, and so for nations to take action, it has to, it has to appeal to the logic 
of the of the people that are the policymakers. Um, and I think that that is just a different logic than than the folks that are looking at market failures that are trying to sort of fix uh, financing gaps uh, that are that are approaching different parts of the problem. There has been a challenge, I think, in climate negotiations of the last few decades that um, by having everyone in the room and trying to resolve everything at once, you end up actually hitting roadblocks, right? Whereas things that are more focused, that are smaller groups of countries tackling specific problems that are sectoral in nature, you know, for instance, the US and EU have been in the last couple of years going back and forth on negotiations around a steel and aluminum agreement. They've hit, had some hiccups. I'm, I'm ultimately optimistic that they will get somewhere there. But I mean, you know, they've been able to move a lot faster than we've seen, for instance, compared to, say, the World Trade Organization, which has been, you know, for over 20 years trying to complete the next round of trade negotiations, whereas the US and EU on a particular sector have been have had a relatively more success in a relatively shorter period of time. So I think that's kind of the challenge of, of climate the, uh, policy problem, which is that, you know, ideally, the first best is that we'd be working on a global level with global institutions, but that's not the world we have. Um, so we have to sort of work through um, the imperfect institutions that we have, but, you know, that are ultimately, in many cases, also more democratic than what we see at the global level. So it's, it is a balance. I, th I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I also think that we often are talking about very, very different things. So if you go back to COP15, I think, in, in Copenhagen 2009, it was agreed that uh, advanced economies essentially would give about $100 billion uh, uh, a year uh, to to developing uh, economies, poor countries, um, and uh, still still that has ha that hasn't really materialized. Uh, but the reason I would I like this example is if you want to decarbonize the global economy, you need something between fifty to ninety trillion dollars invested in the next fifteen years. So uh, with a thousand billion in a trillion. You know, the 100 billion we're talking about is literally a decimal point, is peanuts. And that hasn't really materialized. So that makes me a little bit worried uh, about the, the, the understanding of the sort of financing that we need to decarbonize the, glo the global economy. Now, I'm an optimist, as Todd, uh, like Todd, and I don't think that that cannot be done. I give you an example. So when we talk about crisis, I think COVID was a, big, was a very, very big crisis. And in COVID, it was essentially a climate shock in the sense that it impacted all countries uh, every country went into uh, went into some sort of shock, major shock. Many countries went into lockdown. So it was a health crisis. It wasn't a, a climate crisis. A handful of economies. It was it was it was a handful of economies managed to, in a very coordinated way, which is what we want in, in terms of climate action, in a very comprehensive way, roll out essentially sixteen trillion dollars. In other words, it's possible. Uh, and this was all, by the way, fiscal. Policy. This is not monetary interventions. It was physical interventions. Sixteen trillion dollars was rolled out globally. So what that shows is that in terms of climate change, we also need a coordinated response. Um, and it seems that if we really want to uh, find the financing, we we can do it, and at a relatively at a super speed, right? What you've just said there, Camille, uh, has reminded me of of what Queen is, has already highlighted, which is that she's on the ground, as it were, fighting for the allocation of that hundred billion for um, African countries to become uh, more, develop their own sustainable energy and become more climate resilient. Do you sense that those funds are closer to being unlocked? What kind of conversations are you having? What strategies are you using to get access to that money? I think part of the challenge is, is really, I think, the fact that we do need to just see more bold 
coordinated action from our from our governments, from our multilateral agencies. Um, I, I think there's a green shoot of optimism when you look at some of the commitments coming out of COP28. Finally, the commitment to a loss and damage facility, which a lot of climate activists have been asking for and demanding. Um, and there were actual impediments to that, um, you know, coming to fruition. But the commitment has been made. It's just you know, it's still a fraction. So I think the U.S. only contributed 25 million. And um, I think right now it's probably reached 350 million in commitments from the UAE and Germany and and other governments. But uh, there's still questions around how that's going to be allocated. It's going to sit at the World Bank. We need more transparency in terms of how that will be deployed. So yes, we're making some progress. Uh, a few steps in the right direction, but we have to remain vigilant and, you know, we have to keep the pressure on. It's really critical. How important are people in this? We, the people, just the grassroots, the ordinary, because the COVID pandemic, you know, we were all locked in our homes and we were all looking to our experts and our governments to try and help us. And in some cases that was more successful than others, but people power also is becoming a thing, not least on social media. I mean, Kamiar, I know that you're a bit of a star. You've got 40,000 views online for your talk on, uh, no, wait, 400,000 views online for your talk on uh, climate sustainability. I mean, that's a bit of a blockbuster. So how, how, how can we leverage growing awareness, growing access to social media, growing popular fear in a way of what a climate crisis looks and feels like how can we harness that to build better now not build back but build better right now i think the problem with with any crisis is if you talk about uh how bad things will be lots of lots of people especially in the united states where where, where we'll just we'll just turn off and just not listen to you anymore. I think we need to change the conversation and think about how we can make things, as you said, how can we build back better? How can you make things better? And one of the things I think is really underestimated is the role of green innovation. And I think a lot, a lot more focus needs to be on how can we make societies better off, but also make the environment better off. So we know that green innovation will make the environment better off because by, by its nature, it's reducing emissions. The question is, can green innovation also make societies better off? You look at the positives. You don't think about, okay, what, what's the cost of inaction? It's large, but they're not listening. So what, what could be the cost of, what could be the benefits of action? Okay, the benefit would be you would reduce emissions, but actually it would lead to all these innovations that will uh, lead to higher productivity growth, higher economic activity. In a recent study that we did actually for COP27 was we looked at green innovation over the last few decades. And what we showed was green innovation is actually is more productive in terms of economic activity than non-green innovation. So doubling green innovation uh, year on year will lead to a 5% increase in economic activity. Doing the same thing for non-green, uh, potentially polluting uh, activities, will only increase economic activity by 3.5%. So I think you need, we need to change the discussion Todd, I know at the Roosevelt Institute, one of your key questions is, what does a better society look like? And you're trying to move the whole of America towards something that will look like it can be one built by many for the good of all. How are you leveraging people-centric change? 
Well, I know I've kind of been the optimist on this conversation. So like, let me pivot in the opposite direction for a little bit. Uh, you know, I think that it's true as Queen and Kamiar and yourself, you're saying that that the COVID crisis did was a call to action uh, in a way where every, the entire planet was focused on the same problem at the same time. Uh, and that did create political will uh, to actually spend more money than anyone thought was would, would have been possible even a few months before. I think the other side of that, though, is that even in that deepest and most global and most salient of crises, we there were still some ceilings on what we could accomplish, right? And I think that well, I think a lot about, in particular, the proposals um, to uh, to sort of have a more accommodating intellectual property regime around vaccines um, and, and other therapeutics, where you would think you would have thought that if there was ever going to be a time where that would have been impossible. It would be in a global pandemic, and yet it was very scattered and uneven. The support that it was able to get in rich countries, in part because of the influence, you know, the entrenched interest uh, of, of of large corporations. And I think that that is um, that is the other side of the people power argument, which is looking at sort of how how are there asymmetries in power uh, between different interests, and how can that either be enabling or blocking of action uh, at different moments. The the other thing that I'm that I'm like not optimistic and that I'm deeply pessimistic about is our ability to deploy the kinds of financing that Kamiar and Queen are talking about for developing countries uh, without, in some sense, using people power to rebalance some of that power against the entrenched interest uh, in the U.S. and Europe. And I think that I, I feel somewhat optimistic about what we've been able to do in the U.S., and that's in part because Trump completely broke the political system. So some of the older rules about how things worked were no longer as binding uh, as they had been in the past. Of course, that's very dangerous at the same time. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a mo it's, a, it's a vacuum. So in some sense, you can fill that vacuum with some good things. Uh, there's also very scary things uh, that, that other political actors are trying to put into that vacuum. Um, but I, I think that I've seen less progress uh, on that dynamic in Europe, for instance, where I think there's just a lot more of the weight of sort of institutions that were designed for another era uh, that that uh, that uh, control a lot of how the policy conversation is had. And I think that, you know, the U.S. policy conversation has been a lot more open than what I see in Europe these days. So we're moving towards a conception of crisis as, as critique and as a chance to reset. And actually, crisis is deeply uncomfortable, but it can be an opportunity. Um, and in preparing for this episode, I was reminded of the words of, of the African-American author Maya Angelou, who, of course, said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And that's, I hope, what we're moving towards. So because this is called So Now What? I have to conclude this episode by asking you all, so now what? What do we do? We do know better. We know what to do. What are we doing next? Uh, again, for all the optimism that I brought to the first part of the conversation, this this kind of revolution in economic thinking that we're having in the United States, you know, which some people call Bidenomics, other call supply side liberalism. Uh, there's different different names given to it, post neoliberalism, you know, to put it in theoretical terms, right? Um, I think for all of that conversation, um, we still have not, in, at least in the U.S., figured out what the international corollary to any of that is. Um, you know, there's some big ideas, big rhetoric, but pretty low on specifics. So I think that we have a crucial window in the next few years uh, to try to figure out as you know, American policymakers and policy observers, 
uh, how can we step up our game in a big way in the international space, uh, not only with uh, developing countries, but also with our developed country partners as well. And so I think those of us with good ideas and good research uh, need to be kind of continually trying to keep that space open for, for more progress to happen. Thank you, Todd. What about you, Queen? What's next for you? Yeah, there's this uh, old business adage that says, "Don't let a good crisis go to waste," and um, I, th- I think it I think it applies here to some extent. And you know, quite frankly, it's critical that we need to address the unequal system that disproportionately affects the most vulnerable. And I believe in order to do this, we need new financing vehicles that give investors the confidence to be able to deploy that capital, and and that means. You know, government, as I mentioned, multilateral institutions, we need public funds that can help to crowd in private capital, providing risk guarantees or first loss uh, to give them that comfort to to invest in projects that are focused on clean energy access, carbon removal, adaptation and resilience. I think these are instruments that can really help us to deploy capital more efficiently. Um, I fundamentally believe that there is a moral imperative here. And I think the the COVID pandemic um, was just a great example. And I'm, I'm glad Kamir raised it. We demonstrated that we can move quickly in the midst of a crisis. And if we can find the political will to do what we did then, it means the tools and the resources exist for us to address the challenges around climate change and ensure that we can have a just and equitable climate transition for the most vulnerable among us. Which would be more than a dream. It would be an absolute necessity for us all to flourish. Absolutely. And Camille, so now what for you? Brilliant. So uh, I, I feel like we became very negative, but I, 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 <laughs> I think we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we shouldn't. I think we definitely shouldn't give in to climate uh, defeatism. I think uh, it's clear. I think a number of things that we've raised in this conversation have shown that there's huge grounds for optimism. What's next? I mean, I think it's quite clear that uh, the costs associated with climate change are substantial. Um, and we've been clearly uh, procrastinating over many, many uh, decades, and certainly since the Paris Agreement in 2015. And I think there are huge opportunities here. But really, the prospect for building back better, uh, having a sustainable recovery, uh, achieving the various climate targets really are on the government. And, w- and what I mean is, I hope to see governments encouraging innovation, green innovation, and but that also requires uh, regulation, that requires increasing investments, and but that also requires not just carrots, but also some sticks. And I think if we do that, then we will drive higher economic growth, we will reduce carbon emissions, and we will create a fairer society. I'm fairly optimistic. <laughs> there you go, everyone. That's your shopping list for 2024. That's amazing. Thank you all so very much. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but huge thanks to my guests today. Uh, Queen Nawari Sara Quinn from Kupanda Capital in Washington, Todd Tucker from the Roosevelt Institute, also in Washington, and Kamiar Mahadis from the Cambridge Judge Business School. It's been a true pleasure and an absolute education to talk to you all. I'd also like to thank producers Mandy Garner from Gates Cambridge and Nick Saffle from the Communications Office at the University of Cambridge. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. We're brand new, so do let us know what you think. I'm Catherine Galloway, and this was So Now What with Gates Cambridge. Join us again next time for another wicked problem dissected by those determined to do something about it. Thank you very much. <laughs>